the Buddha was known to have said, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And I first heard that teaching when I was very early on in my practice, and I thought, what is he talking about? That's not one thing, that's two things, suffering and the end of suffering. Um, and it made me realize that I had all of these ideas about enlightenment, you know, and, and these ideas that it was going to be some sort of eternally happy, peaceful, nothing will ever go wrong uh, retirement. Um, but that until then, there was going to be plenty of suffering, you know, no lack of suffering. And not only that, but it made me realize that I had all kinds of ideas about meditation practice. And I've totally related with so many of your stories in the group interviews today. Um, you know, stories about, you know, I came here and I'm ready to face my demons and they're not showing up. Where are they? <laughs> you know, or I'm here and everything is pretty steady. I'm not sure I'm connected. Where's the catharsis? Or I'm here and I'm all wound up and I just wish I could calm down. You know, all these different flavors. As my practice has matured over the years, what I've come to see in my own experience, though, is that actually, not surprisingly, the Buddha was right on in saying, I teach one thing, the suffering and the end of suffering, and that that word and is actually very well placed. Um, that actually it's one thing. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, continuing to use this metaphor that we're going to weave through all of our talks of the darkness and the light, and holding it as one dance, um, breaking apart some of the compartmentalization that we habitually build and maintain. When I'm moving around the state to different communities and offering teachings and giving talks and meeting people, which I really enjoy doing, one of the most common questions that I get um, right away from the communities that I walk into is they say, well, Heather, you know, how did you get into practice so young? You know, how old are you anyway? Um, so I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but when I get asked that question, my response is usually first to smile and then to take a breath. And what I usually say is, well, actually, I came into this practice through the dukkha door, the door of suffering. So I would actually like to tell you just a little bit about my own story and how this suffering and the end of suffering is weaving itself through my life for a couple of reasons. The first reason is there are many of you that I don't know. And so you're sitting in the fire of your practice in that vulnerability as the layers start to peel off. And I'm sitting there with you. And so that vulnerability of sitting in the fire there with you. And the other reason is actually 
probably best explained by um, a yogi in a group that I met with today, and I'm paraphrasing it, but said something like, you know, all of you keep saying that it's just a thought. It's not just a thought, it's my story, and it's painful. And I just looked at her and said, yes, yes, you know, because this practice is intensely personal. It is about us and our stories and our triumphs and our failures and the whole catastrophe. And it's also completely universal. And so as we sit in our groups and as the teachings flow and we share together, we see these ongoing themes of the suffering of humanity in all of its flavors and those moments of aha and freedom that we all share. So as I share a little bit about myself, you know, you can choose to sit and breathe with what it touches in you in this moment in your story. The wider themes, not the details, but the wider themes. And sitting with it in the body, breathing with it in the here and the now. Because our stories are from the past, but they live in us in this moment. They're, you know, they're still alive in us. So for me, um, I was kind of one of those kids who was really um, sensitive. I totally wore my heart on my sleeve. Um, not always an easy position to be in on the playground, as you might know. And I think because of that sensitivity, I tended to be the type of person who you know, when the kid fell down and got hurt, I would be the one sitting next to the kid holding their hand trying to get them to the uh, you know, school nurse or whatever to get the Band-Aid. That was kind of my M.O. And, uh, you know, not to make that particularly special. You know, I had selfing going on even at that young age of, oh, well, they'll see, you know, how caring I am. You know, those things that we don't want to admit. But because of the sensitivity that I had when suffering moved its way into my life, um, I think I was particularly um, affected by it in some ways. And for me, um, one of the biggest themes of the arrival of suffering came for me when I was in my adolescence. And my mother suddenly went into a very deep depression. And um, that kind of set off a series of psychological illnesses that actually continued until she passed away 10 years after that. So I was in my early 20s. And so that dramatically changed the day-to-day -day way that I lived my life. Um, you know, many of us lost our childhood uh, younger than we could have. So early in those years when we were first kind of trying to get some systems together to work with this illness that she had were very dark times for me. And I worked with that darkness doing a lot of unskillful things the way that we do. And I had to go back later and clean up some of the mess of the unskillful actions that I made. 
one of the ways that I started cleaning up that mess was actually through meditation. And we all have our story about how we came to meditation. It's actually a beautiful thing to reflect upon. It often can really uplift the heart, you know, in the hard moments of, like, why am I still at this retreat? Why am I still sitting on this chair or on this cushion? Why did I come here? Why did I start this? So for me, it was very accidental. Uh, I showed up in a women's circle. They were doing all kinds of spirituality that I won't even get into. It was all great. One of the things that they taught was breath meditation. And I went up to the woman who led it at the end, and I said, I want more of that. Can you please teach me that breath meditation? And so she said, come back, and I did, and I learned it. I was 17 years old. And so I built a little altar and put a couple candles on it and some sacred objects to me. And I'll just sit in front of it every day and just sit there and, you know, try to notice that I was breathing. I had no idea what I was doing. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you still feel like you have no idea what you're doing. Um, and in fact, in some ways, the longer I meditate, the more I wonder if I have any idea what I'm doing. Um, but that was the beginning for me. And soon after that, I had a realization that was to become a very deep guiding force in my practice. And that realization was that actually that the suffering that I had experienced in my own life, which was intensely personal, um, might have a purpose that was larger than myself. That I might actually be able to use this suffering as fuel for my own healing, for my own awakening to the truth of how things are, both the hard stuff and the beauty. Um, and that not only that, but that maybe, just maybe, I could use this suffering to actually benefit other people. You know, that there could be enough transformation that I could benefit other people because I already had a very strong stream in me of this offering of the heart that continues to this day. So basically what the insight was was that the Buddha talked about these two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to more suffering and there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And so what I was keyed into is, oh, perhaps I could, you know, make some choices that would help have this suffering lead to the end of suffering. So that was the beginning of my path. And um, years and years of cycles of purification and moving through the suffering and burning in the fire and then increasing levels of peace and happiness and well-being and freedom. And then back into the fire again, round and round and round. to this day. And I have very little doubt that that cyclical nature will continue as long as I continue on this path. So this is a poem by Rashani who says it better than I ever could. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. 
There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So here we are on the solstice, the stopping of the sun before out of its own wisdom it moves into a different cycle of flow. Very poignant, you can almost hear the earth breathing softly today. But what I noticed when I woke up this morning, and I bet that you did too, was that even though it's the so-called darkest day of the year, did you experience the sunrise this morning as you're walking down to breakfast? And how the sun just came and the colors, and they started over there and they kept spreading and spreading and spreading across the sky. So magical with the fog there in the valley. And then the frost, the cold, you know. Did you feel that cold in your bones? You know, and was there that tightening around it of, ooh, cold? And then maybe that, oh, but it's so sweet, and the relaxation of the heart. So much lightness in that dark, you know. And when the sun came, and I love being on retreat here and how the sun comes down and you can walk up on that upper walking trail uh, kind of up above the upper walking room and get the sun earlier than if you're down below and you just feel it on your face when it first comes warm even though you're shivering you know so this darkness and this light it's a really beautiful metaphor because to me, what's very important about this practice is that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done in our lives or haven't done in our lives, no matter what you know, shame is hiding in the corners of our hearts, there's this light, and no one can take that away from us. Nothing and no one, no system, no person, no illness, nothing can take that away from us. We just forget. And then we remember. I wanted to share with you a teaching from, is actually a teaching to a great teacher that I very much revere in my heart. Her name is um, Machik Latran, and she's the, a great female uh, yogi in Tibet about a thousand years ago, about the same time as Milarepa. And she's actually the only um, woman yogi to start her own individual lineage of teaching. And it 
ebbed and it flowed over the years and it blended in with other things, but actually she began this individual lineage of teaching, and that is the lineage of Chud. And the lineage of Chud is, has everything to do with taking the darkness and transforming it into the light. So it seemed appropriate to call her in this evening. It's a very fierce teaching that her teacher gave to her. Um, so what I'd like you to do is take it in in the spirit of, um, of the devotion that it takes to offer your whole self to this practice. Uh, it'd be easy to, to take this and say, oh, I should, I should. It's not about should, it's about that call of the heart to awaken. Uh, and what I love about this teaching also is in the form that I have it, every line ends with an ex explanation mark. So it's like, yeah, huh. So here it is. Confess all your hidden faults. I could probably just stop right there. What a practice. <laughs> Confess all your hidden faults. Approach that which you find repulsive. Whoever you think that you cannot help, help them. Anything you're attached to, let go of it. Go to places that scare you, like cemeteries. Sentient beings are as limitless as the sky. Be aware. Find the Buddha within yourself. So sometimes we work with the, the darkness of our hidden faults and finding the Buddha within ourselves in a very gentle, caring way. And then there are other times when it's like, you know what? Confess all your hidden faults. Just, huh, just that sword of, of doing it that way. So holding all of that. So in the same way that Donald did so beautifully last night, I want to talk a little bit about some of the so-called dark places, places we're challenged, places we struggle, um, and then also this cultivating the light. So we'll start with the challenging stuff. wanted to make sure that we mentioned during this retreat the five hindrances to practice. If you're not familiar with them, I'll call them by their names so that you can get familiar with them. You're already all familiar with them. You just might not know what they are. So we have greed. We have um, aversion. We have sleepiness, which I think has been the top theme of this retreat according to the interviews. We have restlessness, and we have doubt. So Donald named some of them a little more universally last night and asked people to raise their hands if they had experienced them today. And uh, it's very poignant to look out across a room of raised hands, remembering that. The first way I actually work with these hindrances is to change their name, give them a new name. I actually think of them as the five wake-up calls. And I'll tell you why. Um, because we can be sitting here meditating, minding our own business, and you know, suddenly we're totally 
caught in an aversion attack of some sort or another, whether it's, you know, the fear or the um, sadness or anger or hatred or all the different flavors of it. It's like, oh, you know, I was just kind of dozing along in my meditation. It was pleasant. I was about half here. You know, oh, I'm awake. You know, thank you. So I think of them as the five wake-up calls. Say a little bit about them. There's this greed. You can think about it as just the wanting mind, the mind that wants. And it doesn't really matter what it wants. You know, it wants more food at dinner. It wants more space in between the zabutons. It wants someone to shut the door more quietly. It wants more concentration. It just wants a lot of things. So it's really helpful to look at the fact that it just sticks on to things and that they actually jump around. Um, and in letting go of the object a little bit, then we can just be like, oh, you know, what's wanting in my body? What's it feel like? You know, can I live with this wanting for this next breath? Then there's the aversion, which is the flip side of that. It's the I don't want. Uh, so, or, you know, even as strong as I hate. You know, I hate the fact that the meditation hall is too hot and I hate the fact that it's too cold outside and I hate the fact that I've been judging myself incessantly for the last half an hour and, you know, I can't stand it. A wonderful antidote for that is the loving-kindness practice that Donald was teaching this afternoon. Just a way to bring some kindness into the mind that gets really grouchy and goes around. Say a little bit more about the sleepiness because we've noticed in all the interviews it's been a very sleepy retreat. And so I think the first thing I'll say about sleepiness is the non-traditional acknowledgement of sleepiness because we're here at the solstice retreat. This is the cave dwelling time of year. We are hardwired in our cells to come into stillness and quiet and dark and sleep. You know, we can feel that in our cells that we go back to the ancients who knew and who honored that, and we're here honoring that. And so there's sleepiness, you know? So there's a way it's, it can be really pleasant or really uncomfortable, depending on how you relate to it. Um, but there's a way to honor that. And I was saying to somebody in an interview today, it's like, okay, well, we don't have a cave to go into, but we do have our beds. You know, and those covers can go up over your head, you know, before you go to bed. And like, yeah, this is the moment I'm acknowledging hibernation. Hibernation is experienced like this. So that's the non-traditional take on sleepiness. Traditional take, two different streams of sleepiness. One is just the fact that we live really intense lives, a lot of us. We go really fast, we go really hard, and we come here on retreat, and we're tired. And then we beat ourselves up for being tired. So sometimes you need a little extra sleep the first day or two. And the beating up is extra. It's okay. 
Then there's a sleepiness that can come from um, avoidance, avoidance of emotions. And I've heard many students over the years say, yeah, you know, I noticed I was really angry. It's a common one. I noticed I was really angry. And then all of a sudden I was nodding. One second I was angry, the next second I was, you know, about to fall over into the person in front of me. You know, what happened? Well, you know, there's, there's a way, it's, it's almost like the break goes on internally. Like, uh-oh, not that. You know, oh, sleepiness. So there's this way that we can bow to that. Like, oh, defense mechanism, hello. Yeah. Great, still human. Still included. In terms of working with it, posture is really helpful. Um, straightening the spine, you know, not into some rigid pole, but just straightening. Usually we've slumped. Um, opening the eyes. It's fine to stand up and do standing meditation. I actually find that standing meditation is a very powerful posture to practice in, and it's one that's underemphasized. Um, on these retreats and I would totally encourage you to investigate it whether you're on the walking path just do some standing feeling your feet on the ground and the body rising up from the contact with the ground or in the hall here if you get sleepy just standing it's hard to fall asleep while you're standing and then carefully sitting back down so a few helpful hints then there's the restlessness and the way I always think of restlessness is you're sitting in meditation and the restlessness comes. It might start in the mind. The mind just starts thinking about a million different things at once. And then the body starts getting really restless and it's kind of buzzing and you can almost feel it bouncing a little bit. Um, and sometimes it gets so intense. The most intense form of restlessness for me is the moment when the thought comes if I don't get up off of my Zafu and run out of this hall screaming, I'm going to go nuts. You know, have you ever experienced that? Like, I just can't take another breath. This is it. You know, and I'm going to do it screaming. <laughs> Let everyone know how restless I am. You know, so, so that's there. It's part of our experience. So it might seem a little challenging to think about bringing in some calm and some concentration in those moments. It might seem a lot more satisfying to just get up and scream and run out of the room. And uh, Just truth in advertising here, I'm not recommending that <laughs> because it's really going to jar a lot of people if we do that. So I have not done that yet. That means that you don't need to do that. Um, so there's this fierceness sometimes that's required of like, okay, can I just take a deeper breath and let more air into the body and create some more space? Because there's a lot of contraction and restlessness. It's like, you know, and the body already knows, actually. If you can just get into the body when there's restlessness, and often it's really uncomfortable and frenetic, the body will naturally take a deeper breath. It already knows. So to really use that to your advantage feeling the space in the belly. And then as that breath passes, right, I'm coming back. It's uncomfortable, and I'm going to breathe while my body's bouncing up and down and really stay there and see what happens. 
So that's one method of zeroing in and, you know, breathing in calm, breathing out, release, breathing in calm. And then there are times when we just need to go take a brisk walk and move the energy out a little bit. You know, a brisk embodied walk is how I'd say it. Really see how the energy moves and breathes and lives as it's moving out of the body. Instead of just, oh, I'm going to go get rid of it over here on this walk. Use it. Five wake-up calls. Then there's doubt, which is in some ways the hardest because it's the one that you can be walking down the hill to your car, car keys in hand, and not even know that you're caught in it because, you know, what is this spirit rock? You know, it's so restrained. It's so this, it's so that. And who are these teachers sitting up here? What do they know? And, you know, these teachings don't make any sense to me. They're telling me to let go, but then they're, you know, telling me something else and just doubt. So it's a really important one to get to know and to call by its true name of doubt. I see you. You know, and I'm not going to get swept away. I'm not going to push you away. I'm going to, I want to get to know you, see your face, but um, to not be swept away. So the antidote for doubt is faith. You might just be reminding yourself why you came here um, or why you started practicing or just maybe that you can take another breath or do another walking period and that that's enough. Forget the rest of the retreat. Can I just do the next walking period from beginning to end? Sounds simple. Sometimes it feels impossible. We know. Another thing that comes is physical pain. It's another place that can be real dark in our bodies and our minds. And I wanted to name it because I've heard enough stories on this retreat and on every retreat that I've taught, you know, that, that we come in here with these bodies and they're in all different states, you know, whether it's age or illness or health or injury or And as in every retreat, there are many people on this retreat who are working with illness and with injury and with pain. And I want to bow to you if you're one of those people. This retreat. Our body is one of our greatest teachers and actually in the four foundations of where we can train in mindfulness as the Buddha taught training of this gentle, non-judgmental mindfulness of the body is actually the first training. I don't think that's accidental. So if you're here with illness or injury, that is your practice. You're not missing the practice. You know, if you're missing some of the form that everyone else is doing, you're not missing anything. You're doing a very serious training. And it is so worthy. 
I've spent weeks and months on retreat. Um, one retreat, seven weeks unable to walk you know, from an injury, illnesses, all kinds of things. Huge teacher. Then there's the kind of what I think of as the Dharma pain. And Donald talked about it last night where he said that 80% of the pain in our bodies is actually the contraction around the original thing. And that happens. You know, most of us aren't culturally used to sitting on the ground or sitting still for that matter. And so that kind of discomfort arises. And then there's also just the fact that our defense system and these layers that we are carefully taking off and looking at create their own tension in the body, which can be very uncomfortable. So I think it's really important, this practice of taking care of the body as part of practice and not as a break or something that like, I've got to hurry up and do my stretching so that I can get to the next whatever it is. When you're stretching, stretch. That's the practice. On the other side, there's these strong emotions, right? That come and color our experience, whether it's the fear or the lust or the shame or the self-judgment or the jealousy. So it's really interesting how we're just sitting here minding our own business, breathing in, breathing out, pretty simple. And then all of a sudden, this huge anger wave comes through. So where did it come from? And then it just takes over. Use fear as an example here. Um, a poem by Wendell Berry. I go among the trees and sit still. All of my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I'm afraid of comes. <coughs> then what I'm afraid of comes. And it does, we know. There's this story that one of my teachers tells. It's a goofy story, but I'll tell it to you because I got a great practice out of it. And it's this story of a farmer who raises horses as part of his farm, and there's a drought, and so all the grass dies. And this farmer, of course, cares about his horses, and he's thinking, well, you know, they can still eat the grass, but they don't want to eat the grass because it's not green and it's not juicy. What can I do? You know? So he gets this light bulb moment. Aha, I know what I'll do. I'll give them green colored glasses and I'll put them on them so that, you know, they'll see the grass is green. I told you, it's a goofy story. <laughs> so he puts these glasses on these horses and. As the story goes, you know, the horse is like, ah, oh, green grass. Well, it's a little, um, you know, this is some crunchy version of green grass, but it's really <laughs> green and succulent, and, you know, it's just a little chewy kind of nice, you know. And as the story goes, something happens, and the glasses fall off of one of the horses, and all of a sudden they see clearly, oh, the grass is dead, you know. <laughs> it's not green. It's, it's yellow and brown and dead. And... 
we're like that. You know, when the fear comes, sometimes the whole world gets scary. It's like fear comes, and then all of a sudden we look out into our community who we know loves us, you know, just on a universal level, aside from all the little thises and thats that you get into in the silence, which we all do. You know, there's a lot of love in this room. But we look around through the fear glasses and everyone looks scary. You know, and we go outside and it looks scary and everything just feels really scary. We've got the fear colored glasses on. So this is the end of the Wendell Berry poem. Then what I'm afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. So that's what we're doing here. So that's a practice that I took on from hearing that story from my teacher. Um, is just when strong emotions come, if I can catch it, I'll just ask myself, oh, what color glasses am I wearing right now? You know, are they shades? Are they... Someone was describing emotions in an interview today um, and describing them in terms of colors. So, you know, it's the, the red and the orange of anger, et cetera, et cetera. You get your own colors. But really, what's the direct experience? What glasses am I wearing? And how is it coloring my whole world? So my favorite story and practice strategy for working with all these different challenges is the story of the Buddha inviting Mara to tea. And if you don't know who Mara is, first of all, you do know who Mara is, but if you don't know who Mara is in the teachings, uh, Mara is kind of the archetypal shadow element in the teachings and came when the Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree and you know, came as lust and anger and doubt, and uh, the Buddha continued to sit with the truth. What I think is interesting is that Mara continued to come to the Buddha after the Buddha was enlightened, which I love because it totally deconstructs any ideas of some sort of enlightened retirement. The Ma Mara kept coming. So after the Buddha was enlightened, Mara would come and still say, you know, I don't think you're enlightened. I don't think so. And every single time that Mara would come, the Buddha would bow and say, I see you, Mara. I see you. And then the Buddha would invite Mara to tea, as the story goes. So Mara would sit down at tea, and the Buddha would say, well, you know, how are you? What's going on? And Mara would say, well, know, I really don't think you're enlightened. And the Buddha would say, yes, I heard that, you know, and how are you? And Mara would say, well, you know, actually, it's really not so easy to be a Mara. Nobody likes me. Everyone's always sending me away. And, you know, and the Buddha would be like, oh, yeah, Mara, here, have a cookie, you know, have some more tea. Yeah, you know, actually, it's really not so easy being a Buddha either. You know, my, my, my own cousin tried to kill me and 
and you know, I had to leave my family in order to do this, and I have all these <laughs> pressures. It's not so easy being a Buddha either, and I just imagine them sitting there dialoguing, you know. So there's this way of naming, I see you, wake up call, I see you, pain, I see you, fear, anger. This curiosity about, well, what's it like? What's it like to be anger? How does it live in the body? What's the story? You know, what's going on? Um, and the clarity and the acceptance of what comes for tea. And John talked this morning about the, the bowing practice to these things, both internally and externally. So, you know, there are moments when it might be so strong that you just actually need to physically put your body into that bow. And other times it's an internal bow. And it's actually not just for our retreat practice. I use this practice um, out in the world as well, in interaction. And I just wanted to lead off of a bit of an aside from Donald's story about Gandhi last night because it reminded me of a piece of the Gandhi story that really inspires me that connects with this story about Mara and having tea. So um, the salt marches is what Donald was talking about. And as you probably know, Gandhi got arrested many, many times during all of his different um, work for freedom. So one of the times during the salt marches, um, this high official, Lord Edwin, came to him to arrest him. And Gandhi said, okay, you know, I understand. I'm going to prison again. Why don't you come in and have tea before you take me off to jail? The Lord went in, sat down. They had tea. They began to talk. Gandhi started sharing his views. Um, Lord, um, Lord Edwin started sharing his views. And he kept stopping and saying, and now I have to arrest you and take you away. Gandhi said, yes, of course. Yes, I understand. Please, can, you, can we just have one more cup of tea? And they just kept drinking tea and talking and talking until, you know, Lord Edwin's heart was, was changed and turned. And actually, he became one of Gandhi's greatest allies and continue to help him with his work. We can do that. We can do that in our own hearts, and we can do that with the difficult people in our lives. We don't have to be Gandhi. So, the light... Sometimes I think about it's as if we're sitting in a dark room and we don't know what's in there and it's pitch black, can't see your hand in front of your face, dark. And there's that fear that comes and the struggle that comes and the wanting to know what's in the room that comes. And we just start flailing around wildly, you know, trying to grab onto anything. And in the middle of our flailing, we randomly hit a light switch that we didn't know was there, and all of a sudden that same room is flooded with light. Oh, here we are. So it's like, how do we find that light switch? You know, and how do we recognize the light when it's there? How do we cultivate it further? 
I'll just give a couple of examples. I think the examples that I'll choose are from the practices of heart that uh, Donald talked about during the loving kindness today. So one of them is this happiness. I love the fact that His Holiness the Dalai Lama is very fond of saying it's our birthright to be happy. It's our birthright to be happy. So it's not cheating to cultivate happiness, to really be with it when it's there. I used to have this idea in my practice that if I just suffered enough, then I'd be free. You know, and I'd run screaming inside when there's happiness because I have to get into that suffering so that I can get to the end of suffering. It's not cheating to cultivate joy. But I also think that the happiness that His Holiness was talking about is born from seeing that we're more than our neurosis, we're more than our small mind, we're more than our likes and dislikes, we're more than who we think we are. And it's that happiness that's not so dependent on those things. That's our birthright. So I offer you a happiness practice, which is if you haven't done it already, be sure that in the next day, or certainly before you leave the retreat, that you either deliberately do something that you just know in your own wisdom is going to cultivate joy. Whether it's somebody talked about going out and walking on the trails and being with the hawks, or you know maybe it's sitting in the hall late at night by yourself and that really magical feeling if you haven't done that. Whatever it is for you, cup of tea, and really being with it and watch the mind. Watch when it says, oh, it's cheating. I should be doing something else or start, the judgments start. Or watch when it grows and watch the place where it hits the line where it's too big and rest there. Rest there, see what happens. The other one I want to talk about is compassion, which is compassion is actually shining the light of the heart on suffering. So Sultram Alioni, who uh, is a great woman elder in the Tibetan tradition, says, when we look for our true nature, it's indescribable. But what we do find is a kind of warmth, which is compassion. So one little practice I'd like to offer in terms of compassion, and again, it's leading off of something that Donald shared from the metta. The practice of compassion, which Richard's going to teach about formally tomorrow, is basically this caring about suffering. So if you're going to use phrases, it's something like, you know, I care. I care about the suffering. And through this caring, may my suffering be eased. But I also like to use the hand on the heart. But for compassion, I add the other hand, um, hand on the belly, which 
I just came up with on my own, but have since learned from a yoga teacher here at Spirit Rock that it's a yoga mudra, a yoga hand motion, and all different kinds of interesting things about this particular way of doing it. And the reason that I do that is because there's the phrases which connect the mind to the suffering, and then there's the heart of feeling the suffering, and then there's the body. And I want to be sure to stay connected to the body in the suffering and actually feeling the contact of the hands on the heart and on the belly is very helpful in doing that. And so uh, I'd offer that to you to do at any time, not just during the um, Brahma Vihara practice, if it feels like it's helpful. The last thing I want to talk about is it's kind of closing the talk. So this talk started with the personal, right? This story of this one here. And so to weave it back around and to bring in the universal or the absolute. And the way that I want to do that is to introduce you, if you haven't been introduced yet, to Prajnaparamita. And Prajnaparamita, um, Prajna means wisdom, Paramita means perfection. And Prajnaparamita is the mother of all of the Buddhas. And she actually sits right here. If you haven't met her yet, most people know this is the Buddha, but not everybody knows that this is Prajnaparamita, the mother of the Buddhas. Very beautiful, huh? Very regal, powerful. So I would invite you to um, come up and look at her sometime, if you like. Uh, especially her back is, is quite amazing, and you can't see it from out where you are. When I first heard about the mother of all the Buddhas, I thought, oh, that's lovely. you know. And I thought about the Buddha, who's a human being. And I thought, oh, Prajnaparamita, she must have been like the mother that physically incarnated to give birth to all these Buddhas in labor. So, oh, nice. It was only later that I discovered that actually um, Prajnaparamita is not a human being, but a direct experience of the sacred feminine, which anyone can experience. This is not about man and woman. It's about these energies of masculine and feminine that we all hold and live and must to be in our wholeness so that anyone can directly experience. What Prajnaparamita really stands for is this vast birth canal of awareness through which every Buddha to be must pass through in order to manifest as a Buddha in the world. So it's a direct experience that must be passed through. In the grand poem of the perfection of wisdom, it says this, the meaning of Prajnaparamita is not to be looked for elsewhere. It exists within yourself. Neither real nor endowed with characteristics, the nature of mind is the great clear light. Mm. 
If looking for a simile, one could say it is like space. In our tradition, Ajahn Sumedho, who is the abbot of a very large monastery in England, says this, The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We can always have a perspective once we know that space of mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go without us getting caught in reaction or resistance. So in the space of Prajnaparamita, there is this vast space in which our personal stories can live and breathe. You know, the, the nature of all the things that we take ourselves to be can dance across the sky of vastness and be held. The darkness blends with the light. That which is insubstantial blends with the forms, all of which are needed. Not one, not the other. This practice includes everything. Our vastness and the great contraction. It's not conceptual. You know, you don't actually have to understand what I'm saying to experience it for yourself. This morning when John talked about bowing to our experience, he also said something about giving a thank you to whatever comes, so I thought I would end with a poem about thank you. It's by W.S. Merwin. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow for the railings. We're running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, looking out in different directions. Back from a series of hospital visits, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Looking up from the tables, we are saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the back door. In the beatings on the stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying thank you. Thank you. With the animals dying around us, With our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. 
with the force falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like the cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. So I thank you for your practice of listening to the teachings and the kindness of your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.